Well, good morning, Masters University. Welcome back. What a way to get uh, connected to what's going to happen and uh, anticipate kind of the beginning of our semester together. Welcome back. This is our first official chapel since uh, you've gotten back. We did our Truth and Life Conference. I hope you had a chance. Most of you, I'm sure, did get to participate in that as we launched our semester focusing on walking in wisdom. Um, nothing you compare, says the Proverbs, chapter 3 and chapter 8, nothing you desire, rather, can compare with her. There's no other valuable asset you can secure that has greater value than wisdom because wisdom affects everything. So you can live the best life in the best possible ways, enjoy the best relationships, both vertical and horizontal. And I hope you uh, were a part of being challenged about the benefit of being a wise person instead of a foolish person. And then wisdom as applied to speech, Dr. Lawson, Dr. Pennington on wisdom and morality, sexual integrity, and then the issue, Dr. Pennington took us through the issue of work, faithfulness and working because it's a gift from God and there's a way to do it that both honors him and optimizes us. And then wrapping up, and I thought it was a great way to end, Dr. Lawson challenging us on the reward of righteousness. So I hope you're a part of that and my uh, Bible study, for those of you that attend it, will start a week from tomorrow night and uh, it'll be abbreviated so we can help support our home team against Vanguard, but uh, we're going to walk through wisdom this semester as well, Adam and I tag team, uh, so we're going to talk our way through some of the other subjects of Proverbs, applying God's word and wisdom to it, so if you'd like to be a part of that, we're going to launch next Thursday, not tomorrow night, but the one after, um, and so if you'd like to be a part of that, it's my home about a block away from the North Campus. All right, take your Bible and join me in Matthew's Gospel, or Mark's Gospel, rather, chapter 8. Mark's Gospel, chapter 8. If you're a new student, welcome. I met some of you. You're joining us this semester. If you're a returning student, you already know this. But our theme this year is Christ-likeness. Our conviction is that the goal of God in our salvation is not just the relief of consequences of our sin, not just a future home in heaven, but to make us like Christ, to be conformed to His image. He's the firstborn among many brothers, which is to say He's the first of a kind of which all other brothers and sisters are to become like Him, to have a heart like His, to feel like He feels, to think like He thinks to live like he lives. Our kind of structure in pursuing Christ-likeness through chapel is on Mondays we'll talk about heart. Wednesdays we'll focus more often on head, biblical thinking about critical categories, so you can think like Christ. And then on Friday we want to make that as best we can more of a discipleship how-to hands, how to engage and apply what you've been learning practically. Just encouragements, instructions, to the end that we're not just going through the motions saying, hey, I'm a part of the Master's University learning a lot. I'm changing from the inside out. That's our goal. Today, I want to invite you to 
chapter 8 in Mark, and this has to do with your heart convictions. Having a heart like his involves owning convictions that reflect his priorities and his perspective. This morning I want to talk about the most important question Jesus ever asked, the instruction he gave in response to the answer given to that question, and then the bulk of my time this morning, I want to talk about the impactful, life-defining, most important decisions you will ever make with regard to the answer to that most important question. So read with me, Mark's Gospel, chapter 8. We're going to begin in verse 27. Jesus has turned a corner. His ministry is coming to a close. Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, says he has resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. Remember, he kept saying, my time has not come, my time has not come. Now he's saying, my time has come. The purpose for which I came, the chief purpose to give myself as a ransom for many, that time has come. We're in the closing scenes of his life. Critical information, critical perspective, life-defining, eternity-defining perspective is being given to the disciples. And they are going to be asked the most important question they'll ever be asked. They will give the most important answer they will ever give. He will give clarifying, important instruction. And then he will call them to a life-defining decision. Verse 27, Mark chapter 8. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? That's an important question. But it's not the most important question. And they told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but still others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? That's the question. Peter answered and said to him, thou art the Christ. Interesting statement, verse 30. And he warned them, now, Peter spoke presumably for the rest of the disciples. Jesus warned them, the twelve, to tell no one about him. Verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he, Jesus, rebuked Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan, literally adversary, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And he summoned the multitude with his disciples, and he said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels shall save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father and with his 
holy angels. This morning we are going to consider the most important question, but I'm going to focus most after that on the most important decisions that flow out of that question and its correct answer. Jesus has demonstrated by unrivaled words and work who he is. The question was asked, who do they say that I am? They say you're a prophet. They say you're come from God, but they don't get who you really are. And like our culture, who do they say Jesus is? Some do say a prophet. Islam says Jesus is a prophet, superseded by Muhammad. The Jehovah Witnesses say he's the Son of God, but he's created by God to speak for God. You have the Tom Cruise crowd who says he is a special, unique man with the Spirit of Christ on him, whatever that means. If you're a Hindu or a Buddhist, you say he's equal with Krishna. He's some kind of spirit in the form of a man. The world can say a lot of things about who he is, but the most important question is not who they say he is, but who you say he is. The reason it's the most important question, because on the answer to this question hangs everything. The entire purpose of prophecy and all the amazing words and work of Jesus, what it was pointing to, all of it hangs on the correct answer to that question. And it's the most important question in the, all the Bible because upon this answer hangs all of eternity, the eternal destiny of every human being. Let me begin by saying you get Jesus right on this question, his identity, or there is no potential forgiveness for your sin. There is no remedy for God's wrath. Get Jesus right and you have the potential for forever forgiveness, complete cleansing, full freedom, and the experience of the life of God both now and forever. I say potential because here's what you're going to learn in this passage. You can get it right who He is. You can actually get it right what He's done and still not be a part of His eternal kingdom. Accurately knowing and believing who Jesus is is not sufficient to save even the demons in hell, James chapter 2, 19, believe and tremble. A demon in Mark chapter 5, verse 7, identified Jesus correctly as the Son of the Most High God and His future tormentor, and yet that knowledge did not save. Listen, here's the beginning of my concern today. You can be a part of Christian community. You can show up in Christian churches. You can sing hymns and songs like we just sang and still not be saved, and still not be a part of the kingdom of God, because it is more than getting his identity right. It's responding rightly to his identity. Accurate recognition and belief in Jesus' identity alone does not save. Now listen, Peter got it right. He called him the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah. Matthew's Gospel, the Son of the living God. I hope you have that right. I hope that's defined for you. I hope that's a conviction for you. I hope you understand that He's not one of many. One of the characteristics of your generation, they call it Gen Z or iGen, whatever you like, born after 1996, 
Your generation is very accepting, which is why you see such a plethora of willingness to go, hey, whatever, I'm tolerant of that. You want to think that? You want to call Jesus a good man? Whatever works for you, whatever works for you won't work. Do you recognize that He is the one promised? That He is the coming King? He is God in the flesh? He is the anointed Son of David? He's been inaugurated. He'll be returning. Do you know that He is God the man? That He is the Word made flesh? He's Isaiah's Emmanuel, God with us. Have you come to the decision, conclusion, and conviction that He is the Christ, the Savior King, the Servant King? Listen, you haven't lost your mind if you come to the conclusion He is who He says He is and He is who God promised Him to be. There's a wealth of evidence. One of the things God says in Isaiah 46, verse 10, I want to make sure you know I am who I say I am. And one of the ways I'm going to validate the authority of what I have told you and my identity is I'm going to tell you ahead of time. I'm going to tell you ahead of time so that you know that I'm God who can do what nobody but God can do, which is predict in advance the future down to the detail. That's how you know it's true. That's how you know it is God speaking. This is how you know that this is who I am. Which is why prophecy is so cardinal and critical for us as we not only come to our own convictions, but we promote the identity of Christ among those we care about. Do you know that God said ahead of time over 61 major detailed things about Jesus Christ? Things that were said up to 700 years before. Isaiah's prophecies are 714. Zechariah's prophecies are 500 A.D. God ahead of time, over really 300 references to Jesus and His life, His death, His birth. 25 of them on His crucifixion alone. God telling you, so you would know there's no chance that Jesus is chance. You know what the chances are that Jesus Christ is not who God says He is and who He claimed to be. If you took eight major revelations of God ahead of time, just eight, not 61, not 48, not 350 plus, just eight. If eight things were said about Jesus, details like He would come from Nazareth, He would be called a Nazarene, He would come up out of Egypt, He would be born in Bethlehem, just those details, eight of them, the chances, the odds of eight things being predicted ahead of time of one person are one times ten, and this is uh, Peter Stoner who is the uh, chairman of mathematics at Pasadena City College. He did this probability study. He became the chair of the science department at Westmont. The chances, probability-wise, the odds that Jesus isn't who he was predicted to be if only eight things were predicted. One times 10 to the 21st power. That's a one with 21 zeros. 
one in one times 10 to the 21st power chance that it's chance. Now, I don't know what that means either, just by talking about big numbers. So let me give you his illustration. He says that if you piled silver dollars, you guys know what a silver dollar is, I know that we don't carry them. I've got a collection I inherited from my father, about 25 of them, silver dollars. If you took silver dollars and piled silver dollars on every piece of land mass on earth, up to the ceiling, 30 feet high, and I'm guessing, I'm thinking that's 30 feet or thereabouts, 30 feet of silver dollars covering every land mass in the world, take one of those silver dollars, paint it red on both sides, mix it all up with a massive earth shake, blindfold somebody, turn them loose, what are the chances that they will pick the silver dollar painted red out of all of those silver dollars? One times ten to the twenty-first power. That's the chances that it's chance. Now listen, I don't want to spend the bulk of my time validating something you may already know, but somebody else may not know one of the main reasons why you can say Jesus is the Christ, the predicted Messiah, is because of all of the prophetical statements in detail that were made in him or about him that were fulfilled in one person. Told ahead of time, no chance that Jesus is chance. It's not reasonable, it's not rational, it's not probable. There's no option. Be like me eight years ago, coming out with a little paper that I sent to one of the tabloids and saying, listen, our next president, or, or let's say 20 years ago, not even 100 years ago, not 500 years ago, not 700 years ago, 20 years ago. I have a prediction. There's going to be this guy. He's going to be born in Honolulu of an African-American father from Kenya, a white mother, mother from Ohio. He is uh, going to live in Washington State for a short period of time. He's going to attend Columbia University. He's going to go to Harvard Law School. He's going to become the first African-American president of Harvard Law. He's going to become a state senator from the state of Illinois, and he's going to be elected the 44th president of the United States of America. He's going to be the first black president in American history. And his name is going to be Barack Hussein Obama. Now, that's about eight things about one person predicted ahead of time. What are the chances that's chance? One times ten to the 21st power. That's how unlikely such a prediction could be given and be fulfilled in one person. All right, here's the most important question. Who is Jesus? Exactly who the Bible says he is. The anointed king, son of David, and Isaiah's suffering servant. He's going to bear the sins of the many. Savior King. Well, that's what, that's what Peter said, but Peter didn't understand what was meant 
by declaring him God's anointed one because he thought what most people thought, ah, he's going to be a king, he's going to deliver, he's going to set up shop on David's throne and the world's going to get better, the Jews are going to be liberated. That's what he thought, which is why verse 30 says, Jesus warned them to tell no one about him. Even though he got the answer right, the answer wasn't fully formed. Because the most important question is tied to the most important instruction. What would Messiah do? Not just inherit the throne and rule the world and put down all wickedness and evil. Verse 31, Jesus taught them. This is the first time he taught it. He taught them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he told this plainly, so they couldn't miss it. Peter didn't get it. said he took Jesus aside. The language literally reads he embraced him, almost as if he took him aside. Oh, no, this can't be true. It's like trying to keep a relative from going to war. You can't go. You can't go. It's got that flavor to it. And Jesus, when he saw that Peter was resisting, did something unlike Jesus in terms of the tone of what he said, but because it was so important that this be understood, watch verse 33, turning around and seeing his disciples. All right, so here's the deal. Peter and Jesus, wherever they are, Jesus being told by Peter, you can't say this. He's rebuking him. No way are you going to suffer and die. That's where I'm assuming he was fixated, not on the rise again part, but on the die part. And Jesus, seeing the disciples behind him, did something he doesn't normally do, and that he publicly confronts with intense authority and power to his own men. Verse 33, turning around and seeing his disciples, he, epitumao, rebuked Peter. Tumao means heavy. Worth, value. Epi's a preposition that makes it real intense. This is a face-to-face, graphic, forceful, so everybody will see it, confrontation. Where Jesus says, what you just said is unacceptable. Get behind me. You're acting like my arch enemy. The flavor is more like that of a head coach on the sideline, and if you're a football enthusiast, maybe like a Nick Saban getting in front of a player's face who's blown a play or saying or doing the wrong thing, and it's an intense exchange designed to make sure whatever happened doesn't ever happen again. The reason being is because if you don't get this right, who he is and the instruction he's just given, the historical death, burial, and resurrection, you don't get the gospel right. You're not putting God's interest as a priority, you're putting man's interest as a priority. Peter, get behind me. You're acting like Satan. You're not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's interests. And then he says this in verse 34. He summons the multitude with his disciples, and he said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me.
All right, I want you to look up for a minute. What is Jesus doing? Is he giving the gospel, the first installment on the reason Messiah came to give himself by his death as a substitute for sinners, that he would be buried, that he would rise again? Is he communicating the gospel and then now, after that, a call to discipleship? Is this a call to discipleship or is this, key question, is this a clarification of what true salvation must involve? That if you answer the question right, Jesus is the Savior King, the Christ, the anointed Messiah, the suffering servant. He's going to die. He's going to be buried. He's going to come alive. The gospel. He's going to give himself as a ransom for many. God's validating acceptance. Going to liberate him from the grave. Is it the gospel plus discipleship? Or is discipleship a validating decision that goes with accepting the substance of the gospel? Do you have to be a disciple to be a true Christian? Do you have to believe right and then live out the validating expression of that conviction? In other words, do all true believers have to be disciples? Can you be a Christian, get the question right, and not be a disciple? Or are all Christians necessarily disciples? That's the way I want to begin your semester because what Harry Walls, your campus pastor, wants to do is to call you to have the greatest year semester you've ever had toward becoming like Christ because you understand that housed in your salvation, housed in your conviction and profession, is a validating decision. I'm going to accept and promote him for who he is, what Peter didn't do. I'm going to accept and promote decision number one. I'm going to accept him for who he is and the truth of the gospel that he came to fulfill. I'm deciding. But number two, I'm validating that conviction by committing myself to follow Him, to be like Him, to deny myself, my passions, my privileges, my family, my possessions, my stuff, suffer whatever consequences may occur so that I can commit myself to learning from Him, to walking with Him, so that in the end, I'll be like Him which is what a disciple is, a learner. A person who commits themselves to a person to become like that person, to walk with them, to know them, to learn from them, to follow them, to be like them. Turn over with me to John's Gospel, chapter 10. Here's my concern as a pastor of many years and now a part of the culture that you live and participate in. There are a lot of Christians who think that discipleship is the varsity and believing is the junior varsity. 
that there are two stages. I want to say at the outset today, whether you've made this decision or you need to re-up on this decision. Jesus is saying all true Christians are necessarily disciples. All true belief results in a commitment to discipleship. To be a true believer, you must be a disciple or a follower of Christ. Every call of Jesus which he makes to discipleship is a call to the commitment that is required of true belief. That's why the way is narrow which leads to life. Do you remember what the believers in the early church were called before they were called Christians? They were not called believers and they were not called Christians until Acts chapter 11. Prior to that, they were called disciples. All believers were called disciples in the early church, Acts 6. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, verse 2, the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples, not the believers, the disciples. Acts chapter 6, verse 7, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And then in Acts 11, verse 26, and it it came about that for an entire year, they, Paul and Saul, met with the church, or Paul and Silas, rather, met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians. You notice what word was absent? Believers. Now, it's not to say disciples aren't believers. They are. They have to come to a decision where they're convinced that Jesus is who he said he was, and they believe that. Pistuo, they put their faith in that. They trust that. But listen, you know this from reading the Bible. There's a kind of believer that's not a believer. John chapter 2, when Jesus came to Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. They saw the signs which he was doing. But on Jesus' part, he was not entrusting himself to them. Why? The word entrust means to give himself to them in trust and reliance because he knew what was in them. He knew that in them was not entrusting themselves to him. Therefore, he did not entrust himself to them. Remember the group of disciples that heard the hard teaching and then they departed because it was too hard? You got to partake of my flesh and my blood. Listen, there are lots of people who believe who aren't disciples. And a true believer who experiences the life-defining, unbelievable, life-giving experience of knowing God are those who not only believe it, but they commit themselves to the follow the one who provides it. All right, I ask you to look at John chapter 10, verse 24. I want to make a connection. The Jews therefore gathered around Jesus as at the Feast of Dedication, which modern-day Hanukkah, taking place in Jerusalem. Verse 24, the Jews therefore gathered around him, and they were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, that's the same kind of question. Tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. 
because you're not of my sheep. I told you, you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name, verse 25. These bear witness of me, verse 26. You do not believe because you're not of my sheep. Believing certainly is involved. But watch what a believer is, verse 27. A sheep who believes. Part of my flock of which they were not. My sheep hear my voice. Now the word hear means to listen with an eye and a desire to obey. I know them, and they, key words, follow me. They not only obey me, they follow me. That's what a disciple does. They follow me. Verse 28, and I give eternal life to them. They never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. All sheep who are believers are also followers. And all believers who follow, validating their belief, receive eternal life. True belief that necessarily results in the following, true belief always necessarily results in following. Discipleship. Let me give you a bottom line. There is no such thing as a true believer who does not follow or come after Jesus. There is no such thing as a believer who is not a disciple. The belief that saves is follow me belief. You can know who I am. You can even know the gospel. But True saving belief is a commitment to follow the one who provided the gospel. Listen, Christ-likeness is a product of being saved and following Christ. I just want you to know, if you, rehear, if you go through the Bible, which we do not have an abundance of time to do today, you understand that saving faith has many evidences. One is obedience. John 3.36 He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life. Why? Because obedience is an expression of saving faith. Saving faith is believing and obeying the Son faith. It's confessing Jesus as Lord faith. You know this verse, Romans 10.9 If you confess your mouth, with your mouth, Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Now listen, this is not just lip service. This is not just Jesus is master, he's the king. I sing it, I say it. This is living like that. Oh, not perfectly, but as a defining decision of your life. You know that every, not everyone who says Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he, Jesus says, Matthew 7, verse 21, who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. They do what I say. They come to me, they hear my voice, and they act on it. That's Luke 6. Those are the ones who are in my kingdom. So when it says confess Jesus as Lord, it's not just a lip affirmation, it's a heart conviction. You're the Lord. I'm confessing that with, with my mouth, and I'm pursuing that with my life. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So those are just evidences. You know what else another evidence is? Deny yourself, take up your cross, 
and follow me. So I want to conclude this morning with really where I want to go the most today and calling you to a decision that is life-defining and life-changing. Because it leads to Christ-likeness. It leads to a life that otherwise you cannot have. And all true belief, all true faith results in certain things. And the evidence of true saving faith and of the new birth is discipleship. Following Jesus Christ. Now I already said it, but I want to punctuate it. Disciples by definition are learners. They're people who desire to learn from someone. They're apprentices. That's another name. They're close followers who attach themselves, now listen to this, in a life commitment to a teacher and his teachings. And the goal of discipleship, biblically and historically, is to think and live like the teacher. Following Christ means I am committed as a learner, as an apprentice, as a close follower, attaching myself to Him and to His teachings, the goal of which is to think like Him, act like Him, live like Him. Christ-likeness. When its pupil is fully taught, he will be, Jesus said, like whom? His teacher. So let's focus on the second big decision. How it's turned back with me to Mark chapter 8. Decision number one, if you haven't already made it, is to accept and promote God's plan of salvation, the identity, person, and work of Jesus Christ, to accept it and promote it. Don't do what Peter did. That's why Jesus made such a public deal of this. That's why it was so powerful. He wanted everybody to know who would perpetuate the truth of the gospel that you cannot oppose, you cannot resist, but rather must accept and promote salvation in a person through that person's death, burial, and resurrection, the gospel. You must believe in substitutionary atonement, a ransom. If you resist that, if you reject that, you're like Satan. Your interests aren't God's. Your interests are your own. So that is powerfully communicated. Jesus tells it plainly, and he deals with it forcefully and graphically. But here's the big decision I want to emphasize with you this morning as a consequence to this most important question and the clarifying instruction. It's not just the decision to accept and promote him and his gospel, but a decision to follow Jesus to be like him. follow me. Anybody who wants to come after me? Because all believers, true believers do. They have to follow me. Present active imperative. It's an habitual lifestyle. It's a way of living. I'm a Christ disciple. If somebody asks you who you are, it would be most definitive and descriptive to say, I before I ever say I'm a minister of Jesus Christ or I'm a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which sometimes I'll say, I hardly ever identify myself as a Christian. 
because everybody has an opinion of what a Christian is. What I'd like them to know is, I preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, that creates a lot of conversations. Or you could say, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I am a committed for life follower. I'm learning from him in order to become like him. So the most important decision you can make that will affect everything, not just this semester, but really all of eternity, is the decision to believe in him, promote his gospel, and to follow him. To be like Jesus, and if necessary, to hurt, to suffer loss, shame, pain, or death. It requires denying yourself, your priorities, your passions, your very life. So let me give you three things kind of applicationally as we come home with this today, as we begin the semester. The pursuit of Christ-likeness begins with a decision that says, I know who you are, I accept it, I receive it by faith, and I will promote it not be opposed to it. And I will decide as a consequence of that decision to be a disciple. Because every believer is a disciple, true believer. So, three aspects to your commitment to be a disciple. Number one, to deny yourself. A decision to deny yourself. This is an heiress it's an aggressive heiress. It's an urgent call. It's an action. It's a decision point. Yes, you make this decision daily because you're going to deny and die to yourself daily, but it is a call to utterly disown, disavow, reject the self-life. You do to yourself what Peter did to Jesus. Matter of fact, turn over to Matthew chapter 26 and just feel it. Excuse me, Mark, let, go to Mark's gospel rather. Mark, Mark's gospel chapter 14. It's a little more colorful. Let me define deny. And then we'll look at Peter doing it. Denying means biblically and lexically, which means if you look at the Greek dictionary, it feels and sounds like this. You treat someone as if they have no concern. They are no factor. They are of no importance. It's to renounce them as relevant to your life, to your circumstances. They have no bearing. You have no interest in them. They are a non-factor. Now listen to this. They're such a non-factor, it's like they're nothing to you. It's the way the girl treated me who I dated and then I didn't date. I dated her at the end of my 
college time at Liberty and started seminary. We stopped dating. I managed a sporting goods store in the mall while I went through seminary. And I still remember the day as I'm working at the counter. She goes walking by. We had spent time together. We had talked. We had done things together, fun and interesting. She walked by. I waved. I smiled. She acted like I did not exist. She just kept walking. She didn't look. She didn't acknowledge. She denied me. That's what the word means. You may feel that feeling. You may understand that scenario. This is not denying somebody else. This is denying Jesus. That Peter's, or denying yourself rather. And this is what Peter did with Jesus. Mark's Gospel, verse 66, chapter 14. This is what a disciple does. What she did to me and what Peter does to Jesus. This Peter was below in the courtyard. You know this. This is the night where Jesus was betrayed and falsely accused and on trial. He would be crucified the next morning or next afternoon. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself Verse 67, she looked at him and said, you too were with Jesus the Nazarene. So she's identifying him with Jesus. Verse 68, but he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. That's denial illustration number one. Nothing to do with this guy. I don't know what you're talking about. He's such a stranger to me. Verse 69, he went out onto the porch, verse 69, and a maid saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. But again, he was denying it. Imperfect tense. He kept denying it. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know what you're talking about. No relevance to me. No connection to me. Dead to me. Well, surely you're one of them. Another bystander says, for you're a Galilean too, verse 71, but he began to curse and swear, which means with passion and with resolve and with graphic clarity, I don't know this fellow you're talking about. I have nothing to do with him. Now, Masters University, follower of Jesus Christ, true disciples deny themselves like that. They don't, they don't deny Jesus. They deny themselves. They act as if my priorities, my passions, matter of fact, in, it doesn't matter. Luke 14 colors denial with this passage, verse 25, parallel thought. Great multitudes were going along with Jesus, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, by comparison to loving him, means to detest or to treat something as having no value. If someone does not treat his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, as if they have no value compared to me, and even his own life, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple, which launches into, hey, you better count the cost. 
Just like a guy who's building a tower, just like a general who's going to war, you got to make sure you're up for this because this is a call to commitment. This is a call to cost. True salvation is a commitment that costs. It may cost you shame. It may cost you pain. It may cost you dishonor. It may cost you your life, but it starts with, I'm denying myself. It involves a subordination of my natural earthly affections, passions, and earthly possessions, because that passage in Luke ends, so therefore no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Now listen, I know that's radical, but the call to discipleship is radical, and it's a principle. It's to say it's not mine, it's, it's his. It's not my life, it's his life. It's not my academic agenda. It's not my major. It's not my career. It's not my money. It's his stuff. It's his priorities. And it's not family first. It's Jesus first. It's not my friends first. It's Jesus first. I'm a disciple. And nothing competes with that. I'm denying myself. Christ-likeness is the product of people who say, I know who you say you are. I get who you are. I believe it. I'm going to follow you so that I can become like you. And me, I'm turning my back on me. Listen, you know what this is about. If you ever deny yourself to become a good something, a good athlete, a good musician, or able to do things that you want to do, you have to deny yourself. You have to say, no, I'm not going to eat those things. My favorite food group is Krispy Kremes. <laughs> but for this guy to have a future, he has to say no to that. By the way, if you ever catch me eating one, it's a treat day. But you know what denial is. It's saying there's something more valuable I want and I'm willing to sacrifice the freedom, the privileges, and the opportunities that other people might have so that I can experience this. This is you saying nothing is more important than becoming like him. And I'm turning my back on me. And whatever competes with him. And it doesn't mean that I don't take care of me. It doesn't mean that I don't value God's image in me. It doesn't mean I neglect good stewardship of me. It means me is not as important as he is. He defines me. And let me add this last one. And I'm taking up my cross, which is another ingressive heiress. It's a decision. Taking up the cross is a desire and a commitment to say, I'm denying me to follow him even if it hurts. Even if it hurts. The voluntary choice that says, I'm going to endure the cost of following him. The denial of self includes a voluntary willingness to pay the price of being a Christ follower, a willingness to, to daily suffer loss and pain, even to the point of death. It is a daily decision to deny myself and willingly take the cross, the horizontal member beam which says, I'm willing to suffer whatever the cost Listen, people in that era 
And in that particular portion of Galilee knew what a cross was. The Roman general Varus had broken the result of Judas of Galilee, crucified 2,000 Jews. The people had to carry the cross that were crucified and they were stationed along the road so everybody would understand how heinous, how painful, how powerful the consequence of their following Jewish tradition opposed to Rome. When you take up your cross, this is what the cross signifies. And some of you wear a cross. Some of you wear a cross to remind you of the Savior who hung on a cross and what was accomplished there. But here's what else you need to think when you look at your cross. My cross. The cross meant four things. Number one, I'm opposed to the world in which I live. Because the Romans would crucify you because you're opposed to their emperor and his rule. When you're carrying the cross, you're saying, I'm opposed and I'm willing to to deal with the consequences and accept the consequences of opposing. Listen, if you stand up for the master, if you follow Jesus, if you talk like he talks, say what he says, live like he lives, declare truth like he declares it, you're going to be in opposition. It's going to be costly. Two, you may endure shame. That's what else the cross was, a place of dishonor, shame, not honor, opposition, not support from the culture, suffering, not comfort or pleasure, death, potentially, not life. Listen, discipleship requires personal sacrifice. Some of you are going to lose a job opportunity. You're going to lose a Uh, an opportunity to make certain kinds of friends and go certain kinds of places because you're a disciple. You may not enjoy the career you want to enjoy. You may not enjoy the relationships you would have hoped for. You may exchange a lot of things. You may be shamed. People may roll their eyes when you show up looking, acting, and promoting Jesus Christ, the Master. But that's what disciples do. Not perfectly, but by conviction. Peter didn't do it perfectly. You see that here. John Mark didn't do it perfectly. He abandoned the mission in the the book of Acts. Generation Z, which is what sociologists call you, or iGen, says a couple of things about you. Number one is you want purpose in your life. These are motivations, they say, for you, and you can agree or disagree, but this is what they say. Your generation, perhaps as much or if not more than any generation, wants to live for something that matters. I don't know of anything that matters more than Christ and his cause, looking like him and advancing his kingdom. Big purpose. Number two, your generation is said to be autonomous, which is to say you're independent. You want to make your own decisions. You want to start your own business. You want to show up at work when you want to show up at work. You want to define your own curriculum. You don't really like somebody telling you what to do. Now, you can answer that as, yep, that's true, or it's not true, but I will tell you this. If it is true, discipleship is the opposite of doing your own thing. It's doing his thing. It's submission. They also tell us that though you're highly competitive, You're cautious. Safety matters to you. Risk. You're a low-risk generation. This kind of Christianity is high risk. 
because it could, could include shame, rejection, denial, and loss. But to become like Christ, it's a commitment to follow by denying yourself, enduring even if it hurts, for the joy and the privilege, now listen to this, of experiencing the life that is the life of Christ. Because the great exchange is you giving a life up that you can't keep to gain a life that you cannot lose. You can be like Lot's wife who looked back at the old life or you can move forward to the life of God in his delivering grace and his abundant provision. This is why it says of Lot's wife to God's people, remember her because whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Let me read the rest of this and I'll pray. Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, incentives. Verse 35, do this for whoever wishes to save his life is going to lose it. You can't save your self-life, your old life. You're going to lose it. But whoever loses his life, that's the denial idea, for my sake and the gospels, they will save it. Do it because trying to save the self-life results in losing it, and losing it allows you to truly experience life. Verse 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What does it profit? Zero net profit. Verse 37, for what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? There's nothing you can give because your soul is priceless. Verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. Do it because not doing it, following. Do it because not doing it will result in embarrassment and dishonor in the greatest moment of your life when you see the one who gave himself for you, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you for the opportunity we have had to launch our semester. And it's my prayer for my fellow university family that we will re-up if we're not already decided to not only receive you and promote your gospel, but to follow you, no matter what it costs, so that we can become like you. May this be the greatest year we've ever had because we become more like Christ than we have ever been. Help us to choose to make valuable what is priceless. In Jesus' name I pray. And all God's people said, Amen.